Well, it is great to be back this morning, and we are continuing, as you can see on the screen, our study of singleness. Now, if you're new today, uh, if you're just picking up with us on this series, we have been we've been studying this for the past couple weeks now. I believe this is week four, and um, we probably have about six messages, seven, not left, but total. Uh, everybody's like, whoa, how is he going to stretch this thing out? Uh, we could, but uh, I'm going to try to limit myself to about six or seven total messages, which really means we have some, some practical messages coming up after this one. But um, really, the burden on our hearts is, uh, as your leaders, um, Rich and I and the Boundless team, is that we learn to, or that we help you, help equip, shepherd, we shepherd you uh, we want to equip you uh, through these single years to navigate them well. And uh, that's really the goal of this series and, and any series that we do and we bring to you. And most of you in here are single, obviously. Some are not. Some are married. Um, but even if you are, you're going to be counseling singles for the rest of your life uh, in one form or fashion, uh, whether you're in college ministry forever or not. Um, and like we've said, we're all start, start this race single and um, many will finish the race single as well. Uh, spouses pass on to be with the Lord, and so it's, it's very important that we know what the Bible says about this topic of singleness so that we can maximize the single years for the glory of Christ. So that's really what we're all about in, uh, in this series. And just a quick review. In our first lesson, we started it out by we learned that singleness in the Bible, started out as something that was not good, right? It was definitely not preferable. But it ended up becoming something that was wonderful for the kingdom. So you remember that message? We called it the transformation of singleness. We traced out how that transformation happened through the Bible. And again, high level, we saw that it wasn't good in the beginning that man was alone because God's mission for the world was tied to marriage. It was tied to procreation. And after the fall, God promised a physical descendant of Eve who would come and reverse the curse, and that made childbearing very important for that offspring to come. Later on, Isaiah predicted that this child would come as that physical descendant, but that this child would do something unanticipated. This king would do something that was really not not foreseen. He would die childless for the sins of the people to redeem his people, And then he would bring about his own offspring through faith. The offspring of the king. They would be a righteous offspring. He would multiply that offspring. And that offspring would inherit the renewed earth. That's what Isaiah predicted. And that's exactly what we see happening in the New Testament. And now this mission is tied to making disciples of Jesus. Okay, Not just having physical kids, but making making spiritual disciples of Jesus. Spiritual offspring, not physical offspring. And single people, we saw, can be especially useful in this phase of the mission, in this phase of the, of the, of the reproduction, of being fruitful and multiplying. And we're talking about disciples of Jesus. So in our first week, we saw how singleness was transformed from something that was not good to something that is very good. And if you missed that, and I, I just kind of lost you there, even in the overview, you can go back. We've got uh, a podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can go back and grab the message and listen to it there. Um, the podcast is called Boundless College Ministry, Timberlake Baptist Church. So if you want that, um, all of our messages are on there. 
So that was first session. Okay, then in our second, our second week, we dialed in on some specific teachings of Christ on the topic of singleness. And in particular, we looked at Luke 20 and Matthew 19. Luke 20, Matthew 19. And in those passages, Jesus taught us that in the resurrection, in the new age, the new creation, we will all be single. There's a day coming, no matter who you are, you're going to be single if you belong to Christ. And that's in the resurrection. But he also taught us that while we're still living here in this current age, in this old creation, that marriage is still the norm for most people now. He implied, though, that even in this old age, the new is breaking into the old. You guys remember us talking about that? The new is breaking in. And God gifts some for singleness in this, in this age. Eunuchs for the kingdom, he says. And why is that? He says that that happens so that they will be more singularly devoted to the king and to the expansion of his kingdom. So that was Matthew 19, Luke 20. And last time we were together, session number three, we saw how Paul, the Apostle Paul, builds on these principles that Jesus gave us in the most important passage on singleness in the entire New Testament. And that is, it's got to be automatic, guys. This is... There we go, 1 Corinthians 7. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians 7. We laid out six more principles from Paul, or we started, we should say, laying those principles out last week. We only got through half of them last time, so we'll be there again this morning, and you can go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians 7. Now, as you're making your way there, let's remember what's going on in this, in this chapter. It helps to know that this church, this church in Corinth, had written Paul a letter, and it was filled with comments and questions about different things. And here in verse 1 of chapter 7, you can tell that Paul's about to respond to a particular issue that they had asked asked him about, they had written him about earlier. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this is I'll, I'll just review here from last time, but the ESV takes some interpretive liberty here with this verse, and the phrase literally reads, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Right? That's the literal version of that. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And it appears that he's quoting back to them something that they had said, something that they had wrote to them, something that they thought in the Corinthian church. And so what's he talking about? Well, that particular phrase has to do with sexual intimacy or sexual relations, as the ESV translates. But it was also used as a euphemism for marriage. And, in particular, the sexual intimacy that's found in in a marriage. And so it appears here that the Corinthians had thought that either it's good to abstain from marriage altogether, or that if you're married already, that it's good to abstain from sex in marriage. So, it's either marriage altogether or abstain from sex in marriage. And now we see Paul addresses some of this stuff. And I know that sounds weird to us, but what seemed to be happening in this church was that they had heard, they had heard Jesus' teaching on singleness, or at least heard about it, um, that had been passed down to them. And they had become a little too enamored with his teaching on singleness. They might have thought something like this. Well, singleness is the way of the future. It's the way of the new age, the way of the... That's that future that's breaking into the present right now. We're in the new covenant right now, so we should all be single. If that's how we're going to be then, and that's better, 
Let's just start practicing that now. And so it seems like the prevailing view was that marriage is bad. And it seems that even the married in the congregation were trying to abstain from sex, to live a more devoted life to Christ, they thought. But, as you can imagine, this was causing all kinds of problems. Christians that were not gifted for singleness were trying to stay single, and they were falling prey to sexual sin, and lots of it. Just read 1 Corinthians, and you'll see that. Even some of the marriages had split up because of this thinking. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians 7 to try to address some of these problems, try to shepherd and kind of return balance to the, to the issue here, practically shepherd this church in the right way. And it's, it's a complex chapter, uh, but it's a, massive, it's, a, it's a masterful chapter, masterfully done. And as you read it, you're going to notice how he maintains this tension. The tension between the fact that singleness is a reality, it's here, and it's good. Even preferable, he's going to say. And yet, it's not the norm in the church. It's a tension. He doesn't want to minimize the goodness of singleness, and yet he recognizes that this is not for everybody. Marriage is good too, and if people have sexual desire, they have desires for companionship, they need to go ahead and get married. And that's the gist of the chapter. And he applies it to lots of various situations um, that was that was they were dealing with in this in this church, and last time you know we're we're not doing a full on exposition of this chapter, but we're just kind of pulling out some some principles here. We organized ourselves around six principles. We looked at the first three last time, and we'll we'll give a quick recap, and then we'll cover the last three this morning. So we're looking at these six principles, and we saw that Paul is realistic about the problematic nature of singleness for most people. As he starts it out, he's trying to return the balance. And so we said, principle number one, singleness can be problematic for many people. Singleness can be problematic. Look in verse 2. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the, wife does not, or the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Singleness can be problematic. Paul knows that most of the church have strong desires for sexual intimacy. And that's not inherently wrong, we said last week. In fact, God created humans before the fall with sexual desire and so that we would joyfully multiply in His image. That was the goal, pre-fall. But we don't live before the fall, do we? We live after the fall. And sexual desire is often very difficult to control. It's not an excuse, but it's a reality. People are weak, even Christians. We lust easily. And because of that, Paul says, Paul commands, actually, that, it, that, they, that most should get married. Most should take advantage, if they can, of God's good provision of the marital relationship. And so, since this season can be problematic, you don't want to have to extend it any longer than is necessary. That's what we talked about last time. One of the main implications for you guys from this point. And I told you that you can end up, if you're not careful, extending this season... Uh, more than you need to, 
Um, sometimes you can't control the season of singleness you're in, uh, but sometimes there's things you can do about it, and you can actually end up unnecessarily extending it. So how so? Here's a few few ways. Talked about some of these last time, but added a few more here. This is like bonus. Bonus review, okay? How can you extend it? Being unprepared, spiritually or materially. Right? Just being unprepared, whether that's spiritually, in your, in your relationship with Christ, your maturity, or materially. So right now, while you're a young adult, whether you're in college, you're working, whatever you're doing, time is of the essence. You don't want to waste large blocks of time on things that don't ultimately matter when you could use that time to get after being marriable if you have these desires and this is something that you desire. Now is the time to learn how to fight your besetting sin. Now is the time to learn how to deepen your biblical convictions. Now is the time to humble yourself and get discipled. Don't waste precious time with hours and hours on YouTube. You don't want to have an opportunity come to your door and you not be able to take that next step because you're enslaved to porn and the dad won't give you the blessing. It's not where you want to be. You're going to be dealing with that now. Or you don't want to be in a position where because you have no money, uh, you can't get married when the time comes. You could have had a part-time job in school if you were willing to wake up a little bit earlier and work a little harder. So if you have time now, use it to prepare. Don't, so you don't have to extend the singleness season unnecessarily when it's in your power to, to do something about it. Here's another way we extend it. Another way the season gets prolonged is by having unrealistic standards. Okay? Having unrealistic standards. Sometimes the ladies want the guy to, 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 you know, to be over six feet tall, make at least $80,000 right out of college before they're going to consider marrying this guy. And the guys do it too. Okay? Not just the ladies. Everybody has their lists. But it's helpful here to realize that neither of you are that spiritually mature. Okay? You're just not. So don't look for the fruit tree. Look for the sapling. Look for humility under the Word of God. Look for teachability. Look for a love for Christ. Look for gratefulness for His mercy. A love for His church. A willingness to admit sin and work at it. Don't fall prey to thinking you have to have Mr. and Mrs. Right. Because they don't exist. And you're not Mr. or Mrs. Right either. Okay? So just look for the, look for the raw materials. Look for the, the core. Don't have unrealistic standards. Here's another way we extend this season of singleness. Uh, by fearing rejection or awkwardness. By fearing rejection or awkwardness. Now what do I mean by that? Well, many times the guy who wants to get married won't take a risk. Why? He won't initiate something because he's afraid of being rejected. Fear of woman, we might say. But sometimes the ladies do it too. Okay, They won't branch out of their safe girlfriendships because they fear giving the wrong impression, being too forward, whatever, the, whatever it is. Or sometimes both guys and girls are just so afraid of something being awkward that they don't do anything about it. Right? Yes, things are going to be awkward. Okay, You can just check. Check the box. Things are going to be weird, uh, especially so if one of you is not feeling it, right? And somebody comes up and you're like, oh, it will be awkward. Okay, so if you can just go ahead and say, yeah, not a big deal. I'm going to live tomorrow. I feel awkward today. You got to let somebody down. That's awkward. But hey, it's, it's, it's good that somebody's rolling the dice and getting things moving. Okay, so don't extend the season unnecessarily out of fear 
whatever that is, fear of being awkward, fear of rejection. Those are just some ways that we can extend that. So I thought more about that this week, and I thought I'm going to pepper some of those in uh, for you. So that was free in the review. Okay, moving on. Sorry for getting stuck into that a little bit. Uh, We've got to keep, keep going here so it's not a, like a four-hour message. All right, last time we also saw that it's super easy for us, if we're not careful, to start thinking, when you start talking about this, that singleness can be the root problem, or it is the root problem for sin. Like if Paul's saying singleness is problematic, especially if I have sexual desires, then I can't thrive as a single, right? Be kind of the logic. Like, wow, I need, to, I need to get out of this stage. Well, we saw that for Paul, singleness is not the root problem for sin. What is the root problem? Self-control or lack of self-control. That's the root problem. Paul never pins singleness in this passage as the problem. It's always the weakness of the Christian, this lack of self-control. We saw that in verse 5. Talking to the married folks, don't deprive one another of intimacy, except perhaps by a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of... Self-control. Again, verse 9. It's good to remain single, he says, but if they cannot exercise what? Self-control, they should marry. First, better to marry than to burn with passion. So the self-control issue is, is the root of the issue. Paul here doesn't place the blame of our sexual sin on our single state, ultimately. He places it on us and our lack of self-control. And that means then that getting married might help you channel that sexual desire to the right place, but it won't ultimately fix what's burning underneath. It's easy for the, for the guy or the girl to think that if they're enslaved to sexual sin, that the enslavement will just disappear once they have a marriage partner. But we talked extensively last time that it won't if you're enslaved. Why is that? Well, we talked about that again last time, but it, it needs to get dealt with before entering into marriage because you're just going to take that with you right into your marriage. Not going to re-preach that here. Just suffice it to say that Paul's reminding us that our, our la- it's our lack of self-control, not singleness. Um, and that's the root issue. Okay. So if the single state can present a problem for many people, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that singleness itself is bad. That would be going too far in the other direction. right? If they're thinking marriage is bad, you don't want to swing the pendulum and think singleness is bad. Paul knows that singleness is a wonderful thing. And in fact, singleness is a spiritual gift for some. That's what we saw last time. Singleness is a gift. Verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Actually, that belongs to the previous paragraph. Verse 7, I wish that all were as, were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So right here in the same breath, Paul can long for everybody to be like him, in this area, which is single. Paul can long for that, and yet he can acknowledge that we don't all have the same gifts. And that implies that singleness is a spiritual gift. It's a gift from God for some people and not for everybody. And when Paul talks about singleness as a gift, we said, he's implying that someone who has this gift is able to excel in the single state for the kingdom of God. It's not that they don't at times have the desire for marriage or family, but they're able to rise above those desires willingly and freely for the greater desire of being singularly useful for Christ. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But for now, we saw that Paul himself calls us a gift, 
and that God gives it to some in the body. Now, this morning, the time we have left, you can think of these final three principles as really fleshing out this gift of singleness. What it's all about, kind of... And, it, and it's, I think you're going to find it's really going to challenge some of our common assumptions about the single state. I know it challenged some of mine. We're all tempted at times to sort of pity single folks or to, or to self-pity if you are single. But for Paul, it was the opposite. In fact, you can argue that for Paul, singleness was the preferable state. The better state. The happier state, he's going to say. And so we could frame up our fourth principle about singleness like this. Singleness is preferable for those so gifted. Singleness is preferable for those, for those so gifted. We see this principle surface in several places during this chapter in chapter 7. And in each of these places, you're going to hear the same thing. Right? You're going to hear the same kind of refrain. He's going to say, and it's that, that tension we talked about earlier, you're going to hear marriage is a good and fine choice. But singleness is preferred. Marriage is a good and fine choice, but singleness is preferred. And I'm going to add, if, if you're so gifted. Because I think that the context implies that. All right, the first one of these little places surfaces in the chapter, we've already read it, it's in verse 8. I guess we read it last time. And here Paul says it's good for the unmarried and the widows to remain single like he is. Look in verse 8. It says, To the unmarried and to the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. When these verses are often cited, they're often cited as justification for marriage. And that's a good thing, right? Like, I don't want to burn, so I should get married. Yes, true. But don't miss what Paul says first in verse 8. What does he say first? It's good for them to remain single, like him. That's what he leads with. No reason to change your single state if you're managing quite well without marriage. This clearly shows us that for Paul, his own singleness wasn't some curse to be endured. It's not how he thought of it. Singles certainly aren't second class in the body. It's actually the reverse. His statement about marriage is the concession. But this isn't the only time that Paul makes clear that he prefers a single state. Later in the chapter, he says this explicitly in verse 38. If you zoom on down there, he says, So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. There's the first half of the tension. And he who refrains from marriage will do what? Even better. You hear that? He who marries does well, 100%. But he who refrains from marriage does even better. Now that's surprising. And this, this verse comes at the very tail end of a very complex passage to interpret, okay? For several reasons. Um, I won't get into those here, but there's really just two main views on this passage. And it really has to do with who's Paul, who, who is Paul talking to here? The NASB, if you're reading from that, it reflects one view, which says that Paul is talking to fathers and their virgin daughters. So different than, than what is in the ESV. Okay? The NASB reflects is talking to, about fathers and their, their virgin daughters, their unmarried daughters, and those unmarried daughters are getting older, 
And in this case, the fathers, according to this interpretation, are free to let them marry. And if the fathers let them marry, the fathers will do well. So it's the fathers who are doing well. But if they don't, they'll do even better. So, everybody's like, please, may, not, may that not be the interpretation. All the ladies. <laughs> this is a joke. Okay, you can laugh. <laughs> Nervous laughter. All right. There's another better option, I think. And I think it's reflected by the ESV. Paul's talking to most likely, okay, it's difficult, so good people on both sides here, but I think the data is, is that Paul is talking to engaged people, or betrothed is how the, the ESV translates that, engaged people, people who are for whatever reason they were planning to get married, most likely their marriages were arranged, maybe even before their conversions, but they weren't married yet, they were betrothed. And to them, he says, if they go ahead and get married, they'll do well. Like, that's great. Not taking anything away from that. But if they can refrain with really no qualms at all, maybe they, they, they don't have strong desires and that they would actually prefer to be single, they'll do, they'll do even better as singles, he says. But the point being, in verse 38, we see the same principle surface yet again, that for Paul, singleness is not some horrendous fate. These people who can profitably refrain from marriage will do even better, he says, in a single state. So that's example number two of this Principle fleshing itself out. Singleness is preferred for those so gifted. And example number three happens in the very next verse. Paul comes back to advising widows about remarriage, and for a third time, we see Paul's preference for the single state. And here he says, a widow is free to remarry another believer, but she is probably happier if she stays single. Look in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So here again, you hear him straddling the fence, holding that tension. The widow's free to be married. If she wants to get married, go for it. Like nothing's stopping her. It's not sin. It's good. The only requirement is that the, the, of, of her next husband is that he be a follower of Christ and that she wants to get married to him. Right? Like those, those are the two qualifications. Genuine believer, and she wants to marry. We talk a lot about this verse in the dating series. Uh, but notice, it is this, this verse is the setup for what Paul says next, that the widow is happier if she remains single. That's what he thinks. It's like, man, happier? Like, in what sense, Paul? Like, 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 what are you talking about? In this culture, she, shouldn't, she, she certainly would not be happier financially as a single widow. She's going to struggle. She wouldn't have earthly security. She wouldn't even have the joys of a companion to walk alongside of her in life. How could she be happier without that? Well, I can think up some answers, but I think our final two principles are going to shed some light on how Paul's thinking about this and how he could say something as radical as that. Paul seems to prefer singleness because, number five, singleness is free from added difficulties and divided interests. Principle number five from Paul, singleness is free from added difficulties and divided interests. 
that come with marriage. Marriage certainly brings with it wonderful, joyous perks. Okay? I can speak from experience. Okay? As a married man, marriage is a wonderful gift from God. It's companionship, children, stability. But Paul is also realistic. Marriage and family also come with challenges. Challenges for both men and women. Challenges from which you will be spared by the single state. And that's an important reminder in a highly romanticized culture that thinks all our, all our problems are just going to go away if I can find that right, that right person. Paul's saying they're not. And in fact, the burdens will increase. And the first challenge is what I'm, I'm calling here added difficulties in our, our outline heading. Added difficulties. Difficulties that come from, Paul says, living in the present distress. This present distress. Apparently, marriage during this time brings with it worldly troubles that singleness does not. Look in verse 25. It says, Now concerning the betrothed, that's the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the, here it is, present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. These are added difficulties. Now, as we read something like that, we immediately have a few questions, okay? What's the present distress Paul's talking about here? Back in verse 26. Well, you could think about that as the distresses and the difficulties that come in the last days. The distresses and difficulties that come in these last days that we live in now. Last days being between the, the, the first coming and the second coming of Christ. These are the last days. And these are difficulties like wars and famines and earthquakes that will increase, Jesus predicts, predicted, in these last days that we're in. And Jesus said these, these things will increase, and he, he compares them to birth pains that happen before an actual birth of a baby. The birth being his return and the birth of a new age. These are pains that we're in. And for the Corinthians, it's very likely that they were experiencing a, a, a particular manifestation of these last days, a, a particular outworking of these birth pangs. They were likely facing a famine, a food shortage in the city. You can think about it like a particular birth pang of the last days that they were experiencing. And that distress would be certainly problematic for the singles, but it would hit the married with children the hardest. More mouths to feed, more people to care for and protect, more responsibilities. And I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. The point is, they'll experience more challenges living with a family in these last days, and Paul's trying to alleviate them of those pains. Now, for those of us here in America and in the West, for the most part, we've not felt much of the labor pain. If I can keep the metaphor going, it's like we've been living in between contractions. Pains have hit hard in the past, 
Pains are hitting really hard in other parts of the world, like really hard. Probably some of the hardest that have ever been hit. But for most of us, we've not experienced these kinds of labor pains. And it's tempting to think we're not really living in the last days. But if you've been paying attention, they are coming to us. Don't know when, but they will be here. Contraction, to use our metaphor, seems to be on the horizon. And as a married man, the burden of knowing that that's going to hit most likely in my lifetime is almost unbearably heavy. I have to think through things like, what will my wife have to face? What will my children, who will outlive me, have to endure? Those are heavy burdens to carry. It's a privilege to carry them. They sanctify me. But Paul says he wants to spare the Corinthians of those kinds of burdens if they can manage singleness profitably and if that's what they want. He said, I would spare you that. He's going to go on to say that that the time that we live in, the end of the age is upon us. These times are short. Christ's return is very near. And that should inform some of these decisions that we make. But it's not only those added practical burdens that singleness escapes here. He says that they're also free from divided interests in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about, the worldly, th- about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. So don't, don't hear anxieties here and think sin. Hear anxieties here and think preoccupations, what, 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 they're, what they're thinking through, what they have to be preoccupied with. Interests is a good word here that the ESV uses in verse 34. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. or She's preoccupied about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious, preoccupied about worldly things, meaning this age things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, when you read this, at first glance, what Paul says here seems to pit serving your spouse against serving Christ. You feel that? It's like, uh, you not do both? And for me, that's the question, right? It seems jarring when you read something like this. And especially jarring because this same apostle wrote Ephesians 5, Right? It's like I love my wife, like Christ loved the church. I'm pleasing Christ by loving my wife. As Mary, you know, submits and helps me at home, like she's in doing that in the fear of Christ. Like that's, a whole, that's what the whole passage is about. We demonstrate the glory of Christ through our marriage and our home. Paul wrote that. And he also wrote this. Paul's not trying to pit these two things against each other, like pleasing your spouse is bad and pleasing Christ is good. It's not what he's doing in this paragraph. You can certainly please Christ by pleasing your spouse. Paul here is simply being realistic. Realistic. The married people have to focus more on, what we might say, this age stuff. Stuff of this first creation. Stuff that will soon pass away. That is passing away and will soon be, be completely finished. They're not bad things, though. They're very good things. Very necessary things. Things like buying a home so your kids can have a yard to play in. For me yesterday, going across town to pick up a play set. These are good things. I rejoice doing them. 
Saving money for braces, saving money for a daughter's wedding, thinking about college. How are you going to navigate that? Spending time helping with homework, or in my wife's case, educating them all day long. None of these things are bad. And we've seen in our, our series on Thursdays, they can be part of the mission of Christ too, because we're aiming at making disciples in and through our home. These are great things. These are wonderful things. These are rewarding things in the long run. Things that no married man or married woman would ever trade in. These are good things. But the single person is freer to focus more directly on the coming age, the new creation. Like more time for direct discipleship. More flexibility in planting a church in a hard place. More undistracted times of prayer. More freedom to meet needs in the body or spontaneously serve during emergencies. So if we went back to Paul's earlier statement about the widow being happier if she remains single, it's starting to come into focus a little bit more. She's happier, not that her life is easier in the sense of, of she's, yeah, it's just carefree. She's happier because in Paul's mind, she spares some of these worldly troubles that are, that are attended, burdens that come with the last days, divided interests. She won't have those same kind of, of divided interests. She'll be able to be singularly focused on the Lord and, and work in his church. But for Paul, I don't think the happiness rests ultimately in what they're freed from. Right? So he's like, I want to spare you from some of these things. It's not, it doesn't rest ultimately in the negative, like what they're free from, but it rests positively in what they're free to do. And that's our sixth principle. In a unique way, the single person is able to focus more exclusively on serving Christ the King. And so we could say it's beneficial for singularly focused service to the Lord. Singleness is beneficial for a singularly focused service to the Lord. I'm getting this from verse 35. Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So here Paul makes clear that his advice for those so able to stay single is not to restrain them in any way. He's not trying to cut them off from the blessings of, of this life and call them to go be ascetics out there somewhere. He's saying, I'm not trying to restrain you. This is for your benefit, he says. Why? Because they're, they're going to be most benefited the more, the more undivided they are to the Lord. Paul knows the source of true happiness and everlasting joy. And that comes through serving Christ in faith. The more singularly focused you can be on serving Christ and His church in faith, the more joy you will have even in this life. And that's why he says he's advising them towards singleness for their benefit. And when he talks in terms of undivided devotion, our minds go back several weeks to Jesus' image about the eunuch who voluntarily chose to be so for the sake of the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Again, would have blown their paradigm. Nobody chooses to be a eunuch like of their own, <laughs> of their own will. Like, what? He's drawing this as a metaphor. No, it's this, there's sacrifice, yes, but it's for this purpose of being a, being a eunuch for the kingdom. The eunuch didn't have a family. He didn't didn't leave any physical legacy. His legacy was bound up with the success of the king and the kingdom. And the eunuchs were trusted for that reason. They were entrusted with many responsibilities. And here, Paul echoes this same thrust by focusing us in on the purpose of the gift. It's for that undivided devotion to the Lord. 
Now, I think if Paul were here, he would be the first to say that a life of joyful singleness doesn't mean that it's not hard. Right? Think about his life. It's a tough life. It's very hard at times. Singleness will endure challenges many others will not face. Since most around them are married, they'll have to endure seasons of loneliness. They'll have relationships in the body, for sure, and sometimes they'll have some of the most profound relationships in the body. But even those can't replace the intimacy and the stability of a family. It's not a replacement. Singles forego this for Christ's sake, and sometimes that is very hard, even for those gifted with singleness. And that's why for all of us, married and singles included, we have to remember that our brightest days relationally are ahead of us in the resurrection. When marriage fades, we experience a depth to our relationships that we could never have imagined in that next age. You've got to remember that the most intimate relationships here could only point to that day. And that day is coming, and it's coming for every one of God's people, single or married. And especially singles in their times of loneliness have to cling to passages like that that we looked at a couple weeks ago with Jesus' teaching. Cling to Christ, who knows what it's like to be utterly alone. Now, that said, let's end this principle by looking at some ways those gifted with singleness are freed up for more direct ministry for that undivided devotion. We'll talk more about this in, in future weeks, but I just want to give you a smattering here while we're, while we're on it, talking about the sixth principle. One of the obvious ways modeled for us by Paul is an ability, a flexibility for difficult church planting work. Right? Since Paul wasn't providing for a wife and children, he was more free and flexible to pick up and go. Single men are more able to pack their bags and head out to lead a church planting venture or pioneer a new mission endeavor than are the married doesn't mean the married can't. It's just that the singles are often less tied down. Married men will spend significant time shepherding their wife and children in a decision like that. It's much harder to uproot an entire family. And single men, on the other hand, can just make the decision themselves and go. I mean, obviously under the blessing of their elders, but they don't have to convince anybody else. They can just go. And single women, too, have some unique flexibility in that regard. They're free to help with these kinds of things too. They can move to another country, to a hard place, be part of that church planting team. And like we saw on Thursday night, once a lady gets married, her calling shifts to her husband and to care for her family. Paul's not forcing you to do that. Nobody's forcing you to do that. That's a voluntary choice that you make. And if that lady wanted to help a church plant team on the front lines and then she gets married, she'll likely need to give that up. Unless that's the vision that the Lord has also given to the husband too. And they can do that together. That's great. But there's, there's some unique freedoms that come with the single state. Another freedom that Paul had was that he was able to endure difficulty. Paul was called to suffer much for the sake of the gospel, but he didn't have the additional burden of trying to care for his wife and kids while he was in prison or left for dead. He was free to be risky. And today there are many places in the world where to bring a wife and children would be very, very difficult. But those places still need the gospel. They still need Bibles translated. And they are very risky places to go. And there's a high likelihood that you might not come back if you go there. And many through the ages have taken wives and kids and they have paid a great price. 
Well, beyond these things, they're also just kind of the baseline opportunities for exclusive service to the church right here at the, at the local church level. And one, I, I love, one example I love is in Romans 16. It's a lady that Paul highlights there. Her name is Phoebe. Paul sent her to Rome with his letter, like the letter to the Romans, the most significant letter of all time, uh, through the hands of Phoebe. She was well known as a servant of the church. Now in, in chapter 16 of Romans, the text doesn't say that this lady was single. It doesn't mention that. But I can almost guarantee, guarantee that she was, or she was a widow. Now Why? Because Paul would not send a married woman with children across the Roman Empire on a very dangerous journey to deliver his letter. He would have picked someone else. He would advise her to fulfill her noble role as a wife and a mother. Stay, stay here. Keep fulfilling that. Don't abandon your family. Don't abandon your husband or children to go take my letter. So the, fa- the very fact that he gave the letter to Phoebe and the very fact that she was free to serve and known among the churches there as a servant implies that she was single and able to use that singleness for the sake of the church. And we've seen in our own church several ladies like this over the years at Timberlake. Every time you turn around, they're washing the feet of the saints, to use Paul's language. They are extreme. They're an extreme blessing, an invaluable blessing to our congregation. And just one example recently, there's a single lady in our congregation. She spent significant time with a recent widow caring for her young children, after her husband died suddenly with a heart attack in his 30s. And here's this woman, a lot of young kids, trying to work, trying to get her feet back underneath her, and this single lady had the time to come over there and stay with her and help her in this very crucial period of time. And I could multiply examples here, but singles are free to serve, free to disciple others in ways that the married are more limited, free to volunteer at the church, free to help in the office, free to visit our elderly folks who are homebound, Free to care for the sick in the hospitals and pray with them in ways that the married are not. So in the next few weeks, we're going to look at more ways to maximize these single years, whether you're gifted for it or not, right? But for now, I'm just pointing out from Paul's own teaching on the subject that singleness is a gift for some people and its purpose is for singular, joy-filled devotion to the Lord. It's not a curse. It's not second class. Paul prefers it. (laughs) Paul says there's profound happiness in it. And so singleness is worth your consideration. Now, as we finish up here, let's put it all together, right? We can say it like this. Singleness, while it's a glorious gift, is not the norm. Okay? I just lobbied hard for the single state, well, Paul did, uh, lobbied hard for the single state, but I think Paul would himself say this is not the norm. So you're not second class on the other side if you decide to get married. Um, That's what he was addressing in this Corinthian situation. Many need to be married. Many should be married. And they should pursue that in the life of the church. But others who are able, others whom the single life seems appealing, should strongly consider singleness because of the unique blessing it brings, the unique freedom for Christ's sake. And even for those who aren't gifted with singleness, a passage like this really helps adjust your perspective on the single years. It's knowing these principles that will help you take the appropriate next steps in your own life. And even if you can't get married yet, for whatever reason, these principles are going to help you maximize these single years that you're currently in. And we're going to look more more at that um, in the next two weeks. Okay, So we're going to end there.
today. I'm sure you have questions. Uh, it's a tough passage, and I'll pray for us, and then I'll stick around uh, if you have them. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how you shepherd us and even defy some of our own thinking and expectations at times. Thank you for this good gift. Thank you for blessing some in our own body with this gift of singleness and how they maximize it and they, they, they're pioneers. They show us the way for what it looks like to, to live fruitfully and singularly devoted to you um, with much sacrifice through seasons of loneliness. And so we lift them to you, Lord. We pray for them even now that you would continue to bless their service of this church. I pray for those who are single in here that long to be married, um, that you would help them see that there's, there's blessing in these years and uh, that you would help them pour it all out for you. The time is short. And uh, very soon you will return and we'll all be resurrected and single. And so we look to that day, Lord, and we long for it to come. In Jesus' name, amen.